Welcome to the Equine Veterinary Education Podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Equine Veterinary Education Podcast, where uh, author, an author or authors of an interesting paper in EVE discuss their results. My name is Jared Williams, and today we are joined by Chris Navas. He is a veterinarian and internal medicine specialist uh, with a particular interest in cardiology and imaging from the University of Pennsylvania. Hi, Chris. Thanks for joining us. How are things? Good. Thank you. How are you doing? Doing great. Thank you. Um, I guess let's before we get into the article, uh, why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Where are you from and uh, how did you ultimately get to where you are now? So I'm a veterinarian at the University of Pennsylvania. I work here in the cardiology and ultrasound department. I, I, I grew up uh, and went to vet school in Valencia in Spain. And I worked in private practice in Spain for approximately three years uh, before I came to the U.S. And in 2004, I decided to get advanced training. And at that time, uh, the best option was to come to the United States. And then I became interested in internal medicine and particularly in ultrasound and, and in cardiology. And it, it was not really a very predefined plan, but one, one, uh, one thing led to another and probably the people that I've found along the way was, uh, were the main reasons for, for, for my path. That's a little bit the, the summary. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. So based on, uh, those experiences that you've had either in Spain and then coming to America and what you've done since you've been here, what are your professional interests? My, my main interest, my main clinical interest and research interest also, it's, uh, it's cardiology and, and ultrasound and more specifically exercise associated deaths or, or, or sudden death during, during exercise. That uh, uh, would be my main interest. Telehealth interests me because it, I, I think it's a tool that uh, can enhance or augment what, what we do as, uh, as clinicians. So it, I think it helps uh, us communicate or, or, or collaborate. Uh, so I see it more as a, as a tool and not necessarily as a field or, 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 yeah, or a, sp a specific interest or field of study. Gotcha. Well, s staying on the topic of telehealth, that's a, the perfect lead-in for actually what your article is and what we're going to talk about today. The article is real-time telehealth using ultrasonography uh, is feasible in equine practice. This is, of course, in the equine veterinary education. Uh, it's a 2020 article. Um, if Before we get into it, I'd like you to do two things, if you don't mind. If you would um, uh, mention and acknowledge your co-authors on this paper, I'll let you say a little bit about them. And then after that, if you could tell us in general, what is telehealth? Yeah, so my, my collaborators in, in this uh, study or the, the group was fairly, fairly heterogeneous. There were two, two residents at the time from A&M, Carrie Bebino and Alicia Doring, that uh, uh, currently are, are, have already finished their program, so they, are, they have training in internal medicine and, and in surgery. Uh, Damon Ogan, it's a private practitioner in a 
in Austin, Texas. Um, Laurie Teller, it's it's um it's a professor in in telehealth actually, and uh, Texas A and M, I, I think maybe the only or one of the few uh, veterinary schools probably in the world that has a professor that, uh, that it, it's it's title professor in telehealth. And then Claire Underwood, it's the it's the senior author in this in this article, and it's it's a sonographer here at uh, at um, University of Pennsylvania New Bolton Center. And uh, um, Claire, it it's uh, was an important or it's an important piece in a series of studies that we have in, in telehealth because uh, uh, apart from from having a good working relationship, we we do have the same. Uh, the same years of experience and the same the same trainers. So when we do control studies, uh, Claire and Ara are good controls for for each other. And then what is telehealth? Um, I, I did look at uh, when uh, uh, preparing this this article. Uh, I did look at a standard definition for 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 telehealth. And, and it's defined as the provision of health care, health information, or education using telecommunications technology. And if, if you look at um, telehealth in the dictionary or you Google it, there are many different many different definitions. I do like actually more than some of those definitions, some diagrams that, that uh, the AVMA, for example, has a nice diagram that it just shows the different uh, ways that, that um, Veterinarians interact, like uh, you in, um, monitor animals, or you advise clients, or you practice medicine, or you communicate uh, with your healthcare healthcare team, or you consult with specialists. So if you put tele in front of all those words, you can telemonitor, or teleadvise, or do telemedicine, or telecommunicate, or teleconsult. So it's basically just a tool that allows us to do what we do on a daily basis. But just helped by telecommunications. Yeah, I think the, I mean, clearly the most common practice of it that we're all used to and we see and many of us use is teleradiology. Uh, what are other applicable areas in equine medicine that telehealth is used that we might not be aware of? Yeah, yeah, te teleradiology seems to be the most the most common scenario for. For me, uh, consultations, or more specifically, consultations in in ultrasound, it's the most common uh, scenario. It, it, it's common to receive images uh, for interpretation from from uh, from colleagues, but when lately we do these interactions instead of an exchange of emails, uh, we do real time teleconsultations, and it seems like the the it makes easier the the interaction the interaction that that way but uh but this is just because that's what i that's the main part of my of my work i guess ultrasounding ultrasounding um animals I, I guess for the same reason uh the second most common telehealth scenario for me is the use of um devices to obtain or interpret ecgs or currently fitness trackers to to obtain sports medicine data that it's what i do for 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 research for research, but this is also because that's my main area of interest, uh, clinical or research interest. Um, so that just reflects a little bit. Uh, it's just a, a tool that enhances what 
whatever what each of us does. For other veterinarians, it may be most common scenarios could be to recheck their patients. Like uh, um, primary care practitioners may use uh, um, tools like exchanging uh, images or even real time um, uh, um, video conference or things like FaceTime to with their clients to do quick re rechecks on on cases that uh, that um, that they have already seen or triage for people that work emergency maybe talking to to their clients on the phone and decide um, oh this is something that we should bring to the clinic right now or it can wait until tomorrow or don't worry uh, at all so triage seems to be a common mention that use use um, use um, this scenario or um, assistance to remote or underserved areas there are areas of the of the country or the world that either veterinarians are uh, are not there or veterinary specialists are not there so so from that standpoint telehealth can open many opportunities for for veterinary care or or specialist expertise to people in some some areas of the world yeah it seems like for the most part we've all been consulting or doing telehealth in some capacity for a big part of our careers without actually calling it telehealth. I and mean, what you're saying basically is anytime you, uh, somebody sends you a set of radiographs and you interpret it and you send it back in any capacity, that is technically telehealth. What uh, makes your paper interesting, and, and I have a feeling what makes uh, the times of dealing with uh, coronavirus and going forward, uh, adopting this technology, even when uh, the pandemic is over is this concept of telehealth, but in a real-time scenario and situation where uh, the the person receiving the information and the person giving the information are no longer disjointed, such as I see the patient, I come home, I go to my office, I send you the information, you look at it when you have a chance, you get back to me. The idea that this can all happen on the farm at the time is, in my mind, a pretty exciting thing with the potential for a lot of complications and problems, which is why I think it's really important that you're looking into this and doing such an, uh, an interesting way of, of researching it and making sure that when this comes forward and it's used more and more that it's done well and we all kind of understand what we're getting ourselves into. So along those lines, you know, I'm always curious the genesis of, of projects, what people are thinking up before it comes to fruition. When we read the articles, it's kind of already after the fact, all this has happened. But if you could tell us a little bit about where the idea for your project came from, you know, what was the need uh, that you th thought was out there and uh, why did you want to be the one to fill this need? Yeah, I, I think the idea came from seeing how the health industry is developing in uh, human or a small animal um, medicine and seeing how the telehealth market is becoming increasingly larger and, and more important and a big part of um, how medical care is, is, uh, is provided. So uh, I would expect that uh, at some point uh, something similar will, will happen to, to horses. and, and for this specific project, I think the, the time that I spent uh, at A and M and uh, at Texas A and M and the, the 
type of activities that uh, that happened there were, were the main reason for this specific uh, project. There was a group of, of people there that was keen on, on innovation or new technologies. And there was a, um, or the department head still there, it's Susan Eats, which, uh, which always encouraged and facilitated this type of, uh, this type of project. The project was funded by, by the uh, Large Animal Clinical Science uh, uh, Department. So it, it's, a, it's a school that um, facilitated and promoted this, this type of this type of activities and the the it the, the project that, that that made this this article it just became an organized way of getting information about its uh telehealth and particularly teleconsultations in in ultrasound are they feasible is the, was this uh trying to use um Telehealth technologies in to the ultrasounds uh, is was this a uh, uh, feasible endeavor? So that was a little bit the genesis of the idea. What's the overall, or what was the overall goal of the project? the The goal was to test if uh, remote assistance in in ultrasound it's um, it's feasible, and and we have to. Uh, we differentiated two different groups. Is it is it feasible uh, for equine uh, private practitioners, and is it feasible for trainees in the medical or or surgical specialties? From that goal, it seems like this project lends itself to just being a descriptive study. But you took it a little further, which is great, and. This was a hypothesis-driven project. What was the hypothesis? Yeah, I, I, I agree. What you said, it, it, the project is mainly descriptive, but the hypothesis, the formal hypothesis, uh, was uh, um, that teleultrasound would be a feasible method of providing expert assistance to general practitioners. And then it had a, a, a big descriptive as, aspect that was to uh, apart from showing is it or or trying to prove or disprove that it's feasible to describe the the perceptions of everybody involved about the benefits for the patient the veterinarians and what were the the technological challenges or the perceived value of these telehealth interactions for those listening that, that haven't read the paper or don't have the paper in front of them, I'll just go ahead and, and jump into the methods a little bit and tell you that uh, the way it was set up was nice. It was set up into two phases. Uh, Chris, if you don't mind, could you just go and expand a little bit on the purpose of each phase before we get into the results and, and how you set things up? Yeah, so, so the first and the main part uh, of the study um, was to establish um, remote collaboration in ultrasound with private practitioners in, in, in Texas. And these were practitioners with whom we already had uh, working relationships. These were practitioners that uh, um, were um, 
had referred cases uh, to Texas A&M uh, Veterinary Teaching Hospital. So I guess that's an important um, uh, part of the study or, or bias almost, if, if, uh, if you will. So what we, what we did is we talked to them and we went to their practices and helped them connect the ultrasound equipment to the, to the internet in a way that while they were scanning, we could see on a computer screen the screen of their of their ultrasound machine in real time and we could also have two-way verbal communication yes we would be able to i could hear them and they could hear me and then we could discuss well what do you think about this uh, area or could you show me a little bit more cranial or a little bit more more or caudal or, or i'm worried about this specific area so we could just see and talk the same thing see the same things and discuss real time about uh, about ultrasound and the second part had a pretty similar design but instead of uh, uh, having the collaboration with a private practitioner we were guiding our own trainees so these were residents in internal medicine and surgery and they they apart from being a different relationship with a trainee than than a, um practitioner or another veterinarian, a colleague. Uh, this also allowed us to compare sonograms performed remotely and the ones performed on site. So the the, the trainee would, would scan the, the animal help remotely uh, by a sonographer and then another sonographer would scan it blindly um, on site. So that that we try to get a feel for what was what is the difference between the remote uh, ultrasound and the on-site ultrasound. Excellent. Uh, so based on that, uh, let's get to it. What were the results of the project? And before you answer, uh, this is again just a point I want to make for your listeners. If you're able to hit pause and access the article, that would be a great thing to do now. Um, if you already have the article, then of course don't worry about it. If you're unable to get the article, no Big deal, of course. Chris is going to explain everything. Um, but if you have the article, pull up table one of the article, which is really nicely uh, laid out all the results of the project. And um, Dr. Navas can go through the results of that table with us as he tells us um, ultimately what the results of the project were. So, Chris, what'd you guys find? So the first, the first thing that we found is that to answer our our hypothesis um, is that the we did 36 ultrasounds and in 35 cases we could complete the 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 ultrasound so it was feasible in um almost all cases only in one time the ultrasound had to be cancelled due to technological issues as the internet connection for some reason at that time didn't support the 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 communication uh another interesting finding uh, was that uh, when we compare the on-site ultrasound to the remote ultrasound in the phase two or the subgroup uh, uh, that uh, we repeated the same sonogram or the same sonogram was done twice, um, doing the ultrasound remotely took a longer time, approximately 15 minutes longer. I think it, it says on that table, it's um, 40 minute mean, mean duration, 40 minutes when performed by a 
trainee help remotely versus 24 minutes when performed by a trained sonographer on site. And it's it's important to recognize that the level of training right? it's 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 um it's very different. But it's also important that the that the expert sonographer uh, helping remotely and the on-site sonographer did have the same amount of of training. And the third major, major result is that when we ask practitioners, was this interaction useful? Practitioners or the or our or our own residents, what is was it useful? They answer yes in all instances. So 100% of the time, the person receiving the assistance said the interaction was useful. And this this is um, potentially a biased response, right? This is. Uh, um, practitioners that we had chosen based on having a, a previous established relationship. Um, so perhaps with a different population would, would work differently, but, but still I, I find it, I find it um, interesting and almost more interesting when, when we ask what was the reason, why was it useful, this, this interaction, the, the, there were three main, main reasons in about 40% of the cases, uh, practitioner told us it was clinically useful. It changed what I would have done with the management of this case. In another 40% of the times they said it was just reinforcement. It, it, uh, it helped me to know that someone else was uh, thinking the same that I was thinking and, and it was just basically, oh yeah, we agree. This is, this is what it is. Uh, uh, this is what this, this sonogram looks like. Or the reinforcement could could uh, be for the animal owner. The animals, the owners of these animals, were often in the room while the practitioner was scanning. And the, a common a comment was the owner of the animal liked to have another set of eyes or another brain thinking about their about their case. So that was a reinforcement category. Was forty percent of the of the times the benefit and the the, ex, the other. 20% it was just something related to learning. It was something like, I learned something. This is a body part that I don't usually scan and it was good to have um, someone quote unquote coaching and telling me, oh, look more, more cranial, look more caudal or the common lesions that you may find here are this and that. Uh, so something related to being um, a learning experience was the third reason. Looking at uh, the area examined on a number of the cases, you did uh, a musculoskeletal examination. When you were doing that, was there ever a situation, because I know I come across this all the time, where uh, something looked like a lesion and it was proven to be artifact by just rocking it a bit more and, and the telehealth guidance said, yes, I can see where you might call that a lesion and move your hand like this and it's not, or vice versa. Um, something was deemed to be okay and, and through guidance between the two parties, you guys were able to find something. Did you encounter uh, uh, scenarios like that? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's why the real time or ultrasound, um, my personal opinion is that it's key. I, I think for other imaging modalities, it may be that they are they are less operator dependent. And it's exactly what you said, right? When you are scanning 
tilting a little bit up or tilting a little bit down or rotating a little bit this way or that way may change a lot the image. So having a real-time interaction and instead of seeing one frame or one clip, seeing the whole examination, I think it did um, it did um, it did help a lot. And along the same lines, the other thing that helped was to do repeated exams with the same person. So establishing a relationship with the between the two parts, the part the one person that held the probe and the person that was um, giving advice remotely, uh, also subjectively seemed to make a difference. So uh, there was a learning curve for uh, the communication. Like uh, at the beginning, well, everybody may have trained a little bit differently and may do things in a different order or in a different way. And, and as you, as we went along, it was uh, um, clear that we were quote unquote um, learning to speak the same language and uh, uh, even if we didn't know exactly where the hand motions were um, it was easier to 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 communicate or to know what the other person was thinking or doing sure if so kind of putting this all together based on all that in, in a uh, a few points. Uh, what would you say the main takeaways from this study were? For those listening, what are the few things that when they reflect on this paper uh, would be important to just walk away with? Uh, well, very briefly, I guess the my main conclusion is that teleconsultations in ultrasound are feasible in equine medicine and that the perception of the users was uniformly positive uh, i guess for for many other aspects of the interactions um, for example the diagnostic accuracy or which type of exams are are better guided remotely versus done on, on site uh, we didn't tackle those questions so we we would have to do further study do you think that this is a COVID-19 related thing? Is it just a fad? Is it just uh, people learning different ways to use technology? Uh, or do you ultimately think uh, that there is a future of telehealth in veterinary medicine, in particular in equine medicine? And if, if so, what is the future? Yeah, I, I would expect that it will become a routine tool for, for, for veterinarians. Um, just looking at the size of the, of the telehealth market, both in, in, in medical care for, for humans and for small animals, uh, I would expect that equine medicine is just lagging a little bit behind, but, uh, but that we will we will get there and, and perhaps we perhaps we will not get to the same level in the sense that many horses are in rural areas or because we work often in, in barns and internet connections or um, telecommunications in a barn maybe a little bit harder uh, than in a small animal practice or in a in a hospital for for humans or perhaps because the interactions between equine veterinarians and horse owners are a little bit different. Maybe we have a more personal relationship with, with uh, uh, 
uh, course owners or even with uh, with um, between a referring veterinarian and the, and the specialist or or expert, it seems like we have a smaller world in which personal relationships matter a lot. Um, so I know maybe maybe we will not get to the same level, but if, but the, looking at the trends in uh, um, in in medical care in any other field, it, I, I would expect that uh, that that the use of uh, telehealth in horses will grow and grow. I'm glad you brought up the internet connectivity uh, concept. And that is, is going back to your paper, uh, of your 36 cases, you documented that there were technological issues associated with 12 of them. So 33% of the time you had some sort of technological problems. And it looks like uh, they were all mainly associated with internet connectivity. But for the most part, they were all pretty minor. It looks like only one examination uh, could not be completed. Um, I imagine that that's a problem that's going to always happen. Um, hopefully as the internet gets better, it'll happen less and less, um, which was going to lead me into my question on asking you other pitfalls and challenges, but you, you kind of covered them. One thing that wasn't mentioned, and I'm always curious what people doing telehealth think about this, because it could be a major issue, and that is, is could you discuss the potential uh, liability or risk to both the practitioner that's asking for the consult or seeking the help and the telehealth provider that's giving it? In that scenario, when there's error or even when everything's done correctly, but it's, you know, it's, it's a difficult scenario and it's different than being there at the same time, who's responsible, um, et cetera? Yeah, so... Let's see. For for I'll, I'll I'll I guess I'll say what I think the pitfalls or challenges are, and then and then what the uh, what I understand about liability. Uh, although I, I'm I'm not um, a lawyer or an expert, but uh, but I have sat in a few meetings with, with lawyers about this, and I I can explain my 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 understanding. So re regarding the the pitfalls and, and challenges um, that to me that's the that's the key question right it's the difficult question and I, I always say that for me having the horse the person that knows the horse the best either the owner or the trainer or the rider uh, or the farm manager and the veterinarian in the same room at the same time is the best possible scenario telehealth may be able to either augment this or create newer newer opportunities or newer uh, uh, contact points if if uh, if you will so it may give you the possibility for additional or interactions that otherwise uh, would not happen due to the logistics or the or the or the distance um, it, one of the challenges is that it, it's not the same interaction, right? It may not be possible to gather the same type of information remotely that you can gather um, in in person. So maybe we need to learn which cases benefit from telehealth and which ones do not. Um, some some clinicians, when discussing about telehealth, they worry that they 
the information that they get remotely, it's of worse quality and therefore the quality of the medicine that they practice um, may, be, may be worse and, that, and that's, a, that's a fair concern. Uh, other veterinarians uh, worry that this could decrease the number of cases that they see in person. Uh, others are concerned that they, this may be hard to monetize, right? Because as you said, we, we have been practicing telehealth for many years by talking on the phone, receiving text messages, receiving emails, emails and hardly ever we had a, a charge for this. So is it, uh, is it something that we are going to keep doing uh, in a more structured way without, without exchange of uh, money, without payment? Uh, that may be another another challenge, but for each of these concerns, some veterinarians see the other side of the coin, right? Some people see, um, well, this is not substituting, this is just more contact points, or this is not uh, um, that I'm going to get less cases, this is just means a, a larger market, or, um, um, yeah, all, all, all things are, or it, more than it's hard to monetize, they say, well, I just can uh, reach farther and uh, have more more interactions with my clients, so it will. It, I, I'm planning on monetizing those. So uh, I guess it depends on how you see it, and I'm not sure which perspective of the two um, will be the right or the right one. But uh, from my perspective, I guess what we try to do is to design some experiments in which we can we can compare what you get remotely versus what you can get on site, and then maybe we can answer. We can answer some of those questions. Um, and with your question about liability, my understanding is that the liability, it's the same liability as when you um, give your advice uh, without formal structure of telehealth. Like you, you said before, we have always got an email with a tech with a picture or a radiograph and we just gave advice or gave our opinion. So just because you establish a telehealth program and you uh, give formally your opinion with or without uh, exchange or money, that does not change. You just gave your opinion and you are liable for it. Um, you should practice within the regulations of your area and these are usually dictated by either a state or a national board. Um, if you practice directly with, with uh, horse owners in most areas of the world, establishing a veterinary client-patient relationship, a VCPR, can not only be done by electronic means. So either you need to have a previous relationship with that uh, animal, have examined the, the animal, or work in an area of the world that this is not uh, uh, are required and the consultation is a little bit different. Right? In most places, uh, if the veterinarian at the other end of the communication has a established PCPR and considers you an expert on the field, uh, you are legally legally allowed to give your advice. But, but um, yeah, everybody practicing um, uh, either practicing medicine or consult, uh, giving a consultation or an opinion or an advice remotely should make sure that uh, 
that they are doing so within the regulations of, of, of their in the area that's where they where they are practicing yeah for the uh, the client or the practitioner, anybody that's listening that is interested in this and is thinking, boy, I'd like to try this, or this could be helpful for my practice or for my clients. Uh, what is the next step for them to take to get access to or utilize a service like the one you're offering? Yeah, so for the ones that want to offer telehealth services, themselves to clients one i will make sure that they are practicing within the regulations of their area which is easy uh, you go to if you are working in the us you go to the uh, regulations of your state board and uh, it will state most likely you cannot establish a, a, um, a bcpr by electronic means and some states uh, in COVID times uh, change those those uh, regulations and other parts of the of the of the world, there may be other regulatory organisms. So first, make sure that you are practicing within the law, um, and then after that, I would try to not overthink it. Um, as as you said uh, before, um, we have already been doing this for many years. So um, perhaps uh, it it feels a little bit. Um, intimidating to give it more structure and call it telehealth. Um, but really, we are just using other tools to do um, what we have all really been, been doing. So to a certain degree, uh, yes, think about it. Yes, uh, uh, um, consider all rules and regulations. But on the other hand, don't get too intimidated by the telehealth word. word um, because it's just a tool to do what, what we do every day. And then for the for veterinarians that want remote assistance, uh, my recommendation is to establish a relationship. I think this is one of the keys for, for a useful uh, teleconsultation service. So the same way that we refer cases or call for advice, uh, the people that we tend to have a good relationship with or see things in a in a similar in a similar way i think this is also important for the telehealth uh, or teleconsultation relationship and there are uh, currently a few organizations that offer telehealth services so if i need a, a remote consultation i would use the same criteria to choose one of those that the criteria that i would choose to refer refer a case uh, in person Yeah, I think that's good the way you explained the breakdown of it. And I think, correct me if I'm wrong, the, the summary of it for me was make sure your state allows it. Make sure it's legal. If it is legal, the best place to tap is the practitioners that you already have the relationship with in doing somewhat of a disjointed, not real-time consultation, uh, but turn that into real-time. And it looks like the best way to turn it into real-time is you just need a few things uh, to set up your practice to be remote capable. I'm sure if you're technologically uh, savvy, you could probably already come up with your own few things to do to make it happen. But for those that aren't, uh, your article, uh, particularly figure one on page 220 of it, if anybody has 
the paper out in front of them, uh, if you could look at it, uh, you put uh, one setup or method to try to get all the technology that you would need to make it happen. For those who aren't technologically savvy that are looking at this, they see a bunch of boxes and wires and an ultrasound. Uh, could you just explain that figure just a little bit for those that don't know what all those things are? Yeah, so in this in this project, we used a um, commercial setup, and, and it's probably been about two and a half years um, since we um, started organizing this this project. And um, what you can see on that on that screen is an ultrasound machine and a tablet. And then in between the two, there is a box that fed the image from the ultrasound machine, fed the image from Google Glasses and the audio from a microphone and speaker to the tablet and then broadcast it to the to the internet. That at the time seemed to be the most efficient way to do it. And we thought the Google Glasses were going to, were going to, to be very useful um, because the practitioner was already doing something with their hands. And then for us to be able to see what they, are, they were seeing, that was the, the tools that we used at the, at the, at the time. Um, currently, we used, we used different tools. And instead of using this setup, um, we use off-the-shelf teleconference software. Um, so you have different options. They are, they are um, telehealth platforms that will package uh, all the components of the communication. So, so they will package the scheduling and they will package the teleconference system. And they will package the medical record system and the, the the billing and it will become all one package and for some uh, situations that may be the best thing to use for others and currently this is how we do it we we just get off the shelf pieces from uh, from um, different places and we use so different software to to schedule than we use to do the teleconference and to bill and to the to the medical record, so different uh, different situations may require different solutions. But but to me, it's if you are capable of starting a a teleconference call, either via whatever your favorite software is, Skype, Zoom, Starleaf, um, Teams. If you are able to start a teleconference like that, you are able to to start it and feed whatever. Um, uh, video you want to feed either an ultrasound screen or your endoscope if you do you do endoscopy or an external camera if you do gate analysis um, it just allows you to to keep feeding um, video inputs to the to the to the communication but usually it just involves a computer and a set of cables yeah it looks like I'm guessing the, the total cost, these cables and whatnot, you're looking at what, a few hundred dollars at the most to make it all happen? Yes, it, 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 it does depend on the do-it-yourself approach. It's the cheaper approach. And then yes, you probably, depending on which components you use and if you exclude having a computer, um, 
it can be as as cheap as between 100 and 120 dollars and um, um, uh, about 300 to 350 dollars if you want to use um, um, commercial platform it may be a little bit more expensive but also it may be that someone else does a lot of the planning and organizing for you perfect well chris i really appreciate it uh this has been great i hope the listeners enjoyed this uh going through the paper explaining kind of what you came up with why what you found super helpful uh and also hopefully shed light on what telehealth is and where it can go and how anybody listening could take part of it so uh i really appreciate the time thanks so much dr novice thank you thank you very much and uh, with that, we'll conclude this uh, podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and uh, stay tuned for the next one whenever it comes up. Keep your eyes on the site. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this Equine Veterinary Education Podcast. More on the subjects discussed in this podcast can be found online at wileyonlinelibrary.com forward slash journal forward slash e.